I think it's probably helpful just for us to take this in, in two particular sections, just the first set of the verses and then the second set. And so he, when the writer is saying he, he is referring to the righteous person. So the righteous person is not afraid, is not fearful or worrisome about bad news. But bad news is also a a fear of calamity or what Matthew 6 talks about, being anxious about your life. So the righteous person is not fearful or worrisome about what Proverbs 1 describes, dread of disaster. So this particular person in this part of the psalm is not fearful or worrisome about any sort of news, particularly bad news, that may come. And so the psalmist, the writer, is wanting to clearly outline fear. So verse, first part of verse 7 is talking specifically about fear. And so what, what is fear? I'll, we'll just, let's just define fear as concern or worry or angst over something that will negatively impact your life. You know, when Satan uses fear in our lives, in our minds, and in our hearts, it is always attached with hurt or harm, whether that be physically, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, that there's always harm in the fear that Satan presents. You know, nobody's ever fearful of winning the lottery, are they? Maybe if you're bad with money, you are, and you should be in that case. But but we're, we're fearful over harm. Fear is what Robert Mulholland calls trust structures. So, so fear is what we are attached to, right? Fear reveals where our attachments are, where our dependency, where our, our anchors are. You know, the language of John Calvin, where our idols are. Fear is always revealing what we're concerned about losing or being harmed. And Satan knows this, which is why the fear that he presents attacks that very part of our mind and our heart, and sometimes even our our physical bodies or lives. And we don't just have to look around on the news or even at friends or family members to know that the bad news is is not in short supply. It's actually in abundance. And and we should not be surprised by this because Luke tells us in Acts that it's through many trials that we enter the kingdom. Or Paul telling us in 2 Corinthians that this present momentary suffering is light compared to the eternal glory coming. Or even Peter telling us not to consider it strange when we face trials of many kinds. So, so it should not come as a surprise, yet it always does, right? When disappointment or bad news or difficult relationship, doctor's call, a fractured relationship with a family member, work stress, financial trauma, disappointment in the way that you 
look disappointment or hurt into where your life is going, where you thought it might be. And let's just, if we can, just be sober-minded for a moment. While this has been the hardest year of my family's life, at some point, this year will be eclipsed with an even harder year. That might be next year. And the same thing is true for you. There is trauma and hardship and heartache and loss and disappointment coming. And there's nothing you or I can do about that. But what the writer of Psalms is presenting is that there is a type of person that knowing all of that isn't bothered by it, isn't fearful of it, isn't moved because of it. That there is a a type of person, apparently, that even knowing that bad news has happened, will happen, and will continue to happen. And in some periods of our lives, it's relentless. That their heart, their presence is still okay. And so the question then probably is how do we overcome fear? Well, we overcome fear with fear. Fear of a different kind. Fear aimed in a different direction. We overcome the fear that Satan presents to us with fear of God. And so the the language when, when the Bible talks about fear of God, which it does even in the end of Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because there are, there are only two kinds of fear. There is fear of God and fear of stuff, circumstances, people, events, information, The Bible says that there's a better type of fear than the one that Satan attempts to persuade us to believe. That fear of God, and that word can be used interchangeably with love of God. It is a respect, a reverence, a dependence on God. And so the way we overcome the type of fear that Satan presents is by having an appropriate healthy fear, dependence, and love of God. Our reverence and respect, our love and fear of God is is a recognition at its core that life is just too big for us. That circumstances, events, people, information, it's just too much. We can't control it, we can't handle it, we can't manipulate it, and we can't maneuver it. It is, at its core, a submission and recognition of just how small we are, but just how big God is.
these are the, the same temptations that Satan presents to Jesus when Jesus goes to the desert. Satan tempts Christ and he tempts us to believe that there is something in your life and my life that is outside of the territorial governance of God. If there's something in the farthest part of our life or the, the, the weirdest possible circumstance or the worst possible news that God's not actually over. And while Satan tempts Jesus with many things, one of the main things that he's tempting Jesus to believe is fear. If you read that account in Luke chapter four, Satan says, listen, Jesus, why don't you turn that stone into bread? The underlying implication there is you need bread or you're not going to live. And then he takes him to the highest mountaintop and says, I will give you all of this if you bow your knee to me. Trying to persuade the person, the man of Jesus That Satan is the right horse to back. When we submit to the reality that life is hard, it will continue to be hard. We are not in control, but we can still find peace and joy. What we're submitting to is the cadence and rhythm designed by God. Uh, 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 Just pause there for just a second. A a separate acknowledgement, certainly, is how we ought to think about hard news or, or bad things. Is that God's doing? Is that Satan's doing? Or is you getting fired just bad luck? That is outside of the scope of this. So as best you can, try to put that off until you find Dale in the back and then pepper him with those questions. (laughs) But the aim here is clear. That there is a type of person that can live with the reality of fear and disaster and calamity and still find peace. You know, one of the worst hurricanes to ever hit South Carolina was in 1989. I was one. It was in Charleston. It was Hurricane Hugo. And so my dad, he's told this story to me before. Um, it, it, it struck Charleston in September of 1989 as a Category 4 hurricane. And it destroyed the city. I mean, there were whole boats that were lifted up out of the Charleston Harbor and thrown on the road. There were buildings that were destroyed. And my dad was a business owner at the time. The entire top of his building was picked up and thrown hundreds of yards. And I remember him telling me that him and my mom decided to stay. And so I was one years old at the time. And at one point during the storm, it's me, my mom, and my dad all in our bathtub upstairs. And my dad says, it sounds like a freight train coming through the house. And he's thinking, what have I done? I have made a huge mistake. How could I have put my family at risk? And then all of a sudden, without warning, there's no sound. 
absolute quiet. Not a leaf blowing. We lived on a cul-de-sac at the time. And so my mom, my dad, me, walk outside. I'm carried. And you look around and there's nothing. And it was the eye of Hurricane Hugo. So it goes with this person in Psalm 112. The worst of storms surrounds them. But there's stillness and peace and rest and quietness. We tend to think, I think, that we think about fear more transactionally, right? So I get good news or I get bad news. There are times of hardship and difficulty, and then there's times of joy and exuberance. That's not what this psalm or really much of the Bible says life looks like. As an example, take Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be one. He makes me lie down beside green pastures. He moves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's the first part of the psalm. And then it moves into, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We want to read that sequentially, which is, I've got rest, relaxation, you know, gardening beside lush landscape, and then I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. Sequentially. The right way to read that is simultaneously. The psalmist in Psalm 23 and Psalm 112 intend for us to understand that we can have rested souls. We can be beside still waters. Our cups can be overflowing in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. Not merely before it or merely after it. It's not sequential, it's simultaneous. So let's move to the better news part of Psalm 112.7. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Heart in this text, in the Hebrew, is not your actual heart. It's more about your presence, your demeanor, your disposition, your, your outlook, right? So your, your presence or your disposition or your mind is firm. It's established, it's stable, it's, it's durable. Your presence and mind are durable and stable because they are trusting in the Lord. Your, your confidence is in the Lord. This This text, this part of the verse, part B, is essentially what Sigmund Freud called a non-anxious presence. It's this, this steadiness, this stability, this firmness. This is what would be in mind in, you know, Habakkuk chapter three, when Habakkuk at the end says, you know, though the fig tree should not blossom, though there not be fruit on the vines, there's no, uh, Food in the fields to eat. The flocks are cut off. Yet I will rejoice. This is exactly what is in Psalm 1. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaves do not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Or even just look at Christ in the middle of the storm on the sea. There's this raging storm. It, by all accounts, is a a legitimately scary thing, particularly in that culture. And he's sleeping. Or how about Proverbs 31, describing the, the noble woman. In verse 25, it says, she laughs without fear of the future. When was the last time you laughed about the unknown nature of your future? When was the last time you chuckled when you got bad news? Right, and I'm not, listen, I'm not negating God has made us as emotional beings that we are to experience life with those emotions. The highs and the lows. So fear in and of itself is not a wrong or sinful thing. So in this psalm, what is the alternative to a life or presence of fear. I mean, think about Jesus in John, I think it's chapter 12, when he gets told that his best friend Lazarus is dying. And, and keep in mind, Jesus wept over the fact that Lazarus did in fact die. But his response is a window into what kind of peace and stability that this particular righteous person has. And the Bible actually tells us that this kind of what feels like backwards peace in the midst of chaos is possible, right? We think about Psalm 30, that he has turned our mourning into dancing, or 2 Corinthians 6, that we have joy in the midst of sorrow. Because one thing we ought to at least acknowledge is what Jesus told Simon Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, don't you know that Satan has demanded to have you and sift you like wheat? But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail you. And we know If you're a Christian, Christ is in fact praying for us. And that's John chapter 17. That your faith would not fail you. And when you turn, go, when you get through this, when you come out on the other side of this, go and strengthen your brothers. Life is hard, period. But if you are a Christian, you have a particular bullseye on your back. And it will not get easier. But again, Psalm 112 and the entire Bible tells us that we can still know immovable joy. Even with that truth. You know, we see James, the brother of Jesus... 
James chapter four. He says, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. The reality is we can never have hearts that are truly, firmly, and completely trusting in the Lord. Our nature will always be to dread disaster, to fear the future. What if Psalm 112 actually isn't talking about us? What if Psalm 112 is actually talking about someone else? Let's read the whole psalm. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. And in his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns, the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This psalm is about Christ. Christ is the righteous one who will never be moved. Jesus is the one who was gracious and merciful, who conducted his affairs with justice, who will be remembered forever, whose heart is steady. It is Christ's righteousness that endures forever. And so we read this verse, he is not afraid of bad news, his heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. And if that, ver if that verse is squarely up to us, it's a losing proposition. The only way that we can be the type of person that can laugh without fear of the future, can have a non-anxious presence about all that which we don't control and know, is if we depend on and in our union with Christ as believers. You don't have enough oomph in yourself to get through it. God designed it that way because we are an arrogant and a proud people. And the first thing we want to do is go to our little truth and trust structures. Whether it's Netflix or whether it's bank account or whether it's relationship or whether it's status or whether it's whatever it is. There's a better way. 
Don't you want to be the type of person that is not anxious about your life? What you will eat, where you will sleep, what you will do, what tomorrow will bring. Of course you do. So do I. Let me give seven or eight ways, practical, some of them more practical than the others. Seven or eight ways that we can be the type of person that we see in Psalm 112, that we can press into what Colossians says is the wisdom of Christ. We can nestle underneath the shadow of his wings and start to experience life as both chaos and peace, as both calamity and calmness, as both restlessness but rest. Number one. We've got to begin with recognizing with an honest and sober mind that life is difficult. If we try to pretend that life will not or is not difficult, it's like trying to keep your house just so. I've got three kids, five and under. That's not possible to have a house that's just so, right? So it's like, if your house is already messy, who cares that applesauce got spilt again? But if you try to keep your internal home, your external factors just so, that is a striving that you will never be able to do. So start by just admitting It is messy, hard, and difficult. Number two. Slow down. Slow down. I have spent far too much of my own life moving through quickly. There is an allure in our society and culture to speed, to efficiency, that we see nowhere in the life of Christ. He walked from town to town for crying out loud. (laughs) Slow down. You will find that you are able to process and discern truth from error more easily. When you're not speeding by in the proverbial car, you actually notice the faithfulness of God. You see beauty in things that otherwise have been insignificant to you. Slow down. You don't know where you're going anyway. James chapter 4, it's not me. Why are we in such a hurry? Number three. This may seem silly, but sleep. The tired, 
heart and soul is often the one most tempted and fearful. God has designed that there is a direct correlation between sleep and steadiness. And listen, there are times and periods and seasons where whether it be through uh, disorder or a particular hard season that sleep is, is fleeting. But the point is this, is by sleeping, a couple of things are happening. Number one, we're actually just going ahead and recognizing and submitting. We don't run the show. We don't control everything. There's not enough time in the day to get it all done. It'll be okay. Almost every night, not every night, almost every night, my five-year-old asks me, she'll say, Daddy, you watch over me while I sleep. I say, yeah, baby, I will, but I'm going to sleep too. Well, who watch over us when, when you sleep? I said, Jesus. It blows her mind that Jesus needs no sleep. He just cannot understand that. I don't understand. Is he tired? Does he not need a nap? But he doesn't sleep. He doesn't rest because he's actually the one that controls the arc of history, not you or me. And so by sleeping, we are submitting to that truth, but we're also laying the ground in the, 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 the soil of our hearts to be ready to fight the difficulty of life. Number four, depend on others. Galatians 6.2 tells us to carry one another's burdens. Look, in Jesus' worst moment of his life, where is he? In the garden, praying by himself? Nope. Praying with friends. You and I cannot shoulder life together. Our life without one another. We need each other. And that is God's design. So if you're a private person, stop being private. It's to your detriment. If you're a proud person that doesn't like to ask for help, get over yourself. You can't do it. Number five. Cry when it's time to cry and laugh when it's time to laugh. Ecclesiastes 2 tells us that there is, in fact, a time for everything. There is a time to sow and a time to reap. There's a time to build and a time to tear down. There's a time to laugh and there's a time to cry. God has woven that cadence and rhythm into the fabric of creation. So if you're in a particular difficult season, then be in a difficult season. If you're in a season of joy, be in a season of joy. But those circumstances don't have to determine the disposition and presence of the posture of your heart. When we are living where God lives, when we are in his presence, Psalm 16 tells us there is fullness of joy. There's no caveats with that. I mean, think about what Philippians tells us, that 
Jesus, when looking at the cross for the joy set before him. How does that make any sense? Because joy is about being in the presence of God, not having good or bad news. Number six, which seems timely, seek the presence of God. You know, this can look a lot of different ways, but it at least looks like times of prayer and scripture, the corporate gathering together. And remember, prayer in and of itself has no power. It's where those prayers are aimed. The Bible, if it was just words, would mean nothing. But it's who wrote them. There's a personal guarantee from heaven behind these words. Ronald uh, Rollheiser says that prayer is relaxing into God. I love that. That seeking the presence of God looks a lot of different ways. And it has over the last 2,000 plus years for the church. And so let's not get pigeonholed into the American Christian version of what it means to seek God's presence. I mean, this is, this is how the writer in Lamentations says he just spends 20 verses just totally venting about how tough life is for him. And then he says in verse 21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end and they are new every morning. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And do remember this. This is Psalm 30. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And so there are times and seasons where bad news is just like rapid fire There are times when good news feels the same way. If we come to depend on when and how the phone rings or the email we get or the affirmation we receive or what the scale says, I promise you, you and I will never live a life of joy and peace. But if we can encourage and keep one another accountable and remind each other that there's a different and a better way. This is, this is actually what Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, is talking about, this backwards reality, or as we've called it, you know, upside-down kingdom. How can someone have peace and chaos? Because the sleeping Christ is certainly more powerful than any raging storm. And if you're going slow enough to take time and aim your heart there every day, you too can be like the righteous person who has no fear of bad news, whose heart is firm, 
trusting in the Lord. One of the ways that we can acknowledge that very thing is through communion. We place Christ's work on a pedestal saying that it was perfect. It was enough. It purchased our peace and diminished any impact that news, disaster, or calamity has on us. And so in just a minute, we'll have communion. You can come down the center aisles. Let's spend some time considering how we can move from an anxious presence to a non-anxious presence because of Christ's work for us. Let's pray.